Good morning. Or may I say Shana Tova to you this morning. Happy New Year. It is the Jewish New Year. Today is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And I wanted to point that out for one reason above all others, and that is Jesus died on Passover and thus fulfilled it. He fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread by his sinless life. Uh, he also fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits as he is the first to raise from the dead and stay alive forevermore. And also the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost was fulfilled quite literally when the church was born. Uh, Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks also is a feast that remembers that God breathed life into Adam just as God breathed life into the church when a mighty rushing wind came upon the church and the church was born and filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are some who make the argument that because of the spring feast being fulfilled on the exact day of their commemoration, that the rapture of the church might happen on Rosh Hashanah. Well, it is Rosh Hashanah, and I'm not saying the rapture is going to happen today, but I am saying I'm okay with that. Amen? Either way, Jesus is coming soon. Now, this morning we're going to continue with the second half of the message we looked at last week. So would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We'll look at 25 through 38 as our text this morning. Now, by way of introduction, we've mentioned something in the past that it is important, especially when we make note of Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, being his last words. We study the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, and there is an importance that is attached to the final words of any human being, especially someone who is important as the two we just mentioned, and therefore we ought to give a careful study when we encounter the last words of any one or member of Scripture who the Lord and Holy Spirit has used uh, to write and pen these words that we look at so closely each week. Now, we as a society have even underscored the importance of someone's final words with a colloquialism where we often talk about somebody's famous last words. Now, Let me share with you two contrasting last words of two people, one who was known specifically within his scientific discipline. His name was Michael Faraday, and he was a renowned chemical scientist. And as he lay on his deathbed, his wife asked him if he had ever pondered what his job would be when he arrives in heaven. And before he died, or the quote says, became unconscious to the world, Faraday calmly uttered his last words in response to his wife's question about his occupation in heaven. And he said this, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Amen? Amen. Now, in contrast to the famous last words of Michael Faraday, the founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, had these famous last words to quote, and at his death, as he was breathing his last, he said, Oh my, oh my, something is wrong, something is very wrong. And he indeed had been very wrong his entire life about who God is, and the devil had deceived him greatly. Now, the last words that we'll read this morning were not the last spoken of by Paul on earth, but they were the last that 
the Ephesian elders were ever going to hear from him face to face. And within our text this morning is also a set of famous words, though not the last words, not of Paul, but of Jesus that are quoted by both believer and unbeliever alike. Now, last week we noted that what Paul was doing was he was advancing toward his farewell address by taking the Ephesian elders back to when he first came to the area of Asia Minor. Now, back in chapter 20, 17 to 21, Paul, uh, Luke writes of Paul that from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, remember, it was 30 miles walk uh, from Ephesus to Miletus. He said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all pride in my efforts. With all what? Humility with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would go on to say that actually my future looks a lot like the past because what the Lord has told me is that in every city, chains and tribulations await me. And yet he stated, none of these things are moving me off course. And then he presented to them what we used as our title and what should also be our desire. And that is he wanted to have, he wanted them to have, God wants us to have a strong finish. And today we'll add part two to our title. Now, Paul is going to transition back and forth from testimony to instruction in our text and give the elders a warning about what's going to happen after his departure. Now, in John 13, 17, Jesus said, if you know these sayings, blessed are you because you know them. Blessed are you if you do them. Now, it was interesting this past week in a sad way that another youth pastor from a very large church came out and denied his faith, said he was leaving the Christian faith and proclaimed to the world to hear that he is gay. And in his acknowledgement of all the good he had seen in the form of caring for the poor and feeding those in need, which is basically the social gospel movement, he used an expletive to describe the contents of the Bible that were contradictory to his chosen lifestyle. And he condemned the Bible as sheer nonsense. Now, the Ephesian elders must not have taken Paul's instruction and warning very seriously, because as we noted some last week, some 35 years later, they would receive a word of correction from the Lord Jesus himself when he uh, authored the uh, letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor and had then delivered the uh, messenger. He called them to repent and to return to their first love. Now in Hebrews 2.1, we're told we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have learned, lest we drift away. Now the two-word phrase drift away actually comes from a single Greek word that means to pass or flow by, to carelessly pass. It's the same word that would be used in the Greek to say the phrase, to slip your mind. Now, as we found last week, and we're reminded often, here at CCT, time is flowing by. And we're running out of time, amen? 
And therefore, we must give the more earnest heed, lest the works prepared beforehand by God for us to walk in slip our minds. Now, our text is going to close this morning with a tear-filled goodbye as Paul then begins his circuitous journey to Jerusalem, having done all he can with his last words to encourage the Ephesian elders to follow his, his example and have a strong finish as he so desired. So with that said, let's jump back into our text and topic. And would you stand and read with me, please, the balance of chapter 20 of Acts, verses 25 through 38, and we'll continue our message title. A strong finish. Acts chapter 20, 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which is the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And Lord, we thank you for this uh, second opportunity, Lord, to be reminded of how urgent the hour is and how late it is in the grand scheme of things. And Lord, may we, as we mentioned last week, have that reserved kick of supernatural strength to finish well and do the things you prepared for us to do for your namesake and glory. Speak to our hearts and give us ears to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Now, after Paul announces that this is the last time that they will have a face-to-face conversation in this life, he begins his instruction with the word, therefore, meaning since this is the last time we're going to talk, here are the things I want you to know and remember most of all. He then cites his own actions as an example of how they are to proceed in his absence. He first makes a declaration of his own innocence of the blood of all men. Now, declaring one's innocence also implies that there is a possibility of guilt. Guilt of what? Well, the text answers the question, being guilty of shunning to make known the whole counsel of God. 
Now, James gives a very hearty warning in James 3, 1. The Lord's half-brother, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, it's a sad reality in these last days that this verse has given very little consideration when sermons are prepared by many. And the whole counsel of God is oftentimes ignored and even more frequently disparaged by some pastors today. And we even made mention some time ago about a pastor in Atlanta who made the statement we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. I don't know why we would want to do that since there are portions of the Old Testament that are happening all around us today concerning the nation of Israel. Listen, the whole Bible is living and powerful. The Old Testament is still alive today. There's still value in studying what is written on its pages because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Somebody say something this morning. Now, If Paul was innocent of the blood of all men because he didn't shun to teach the whole counsel of God, then therefore this implies that those who do shun the whole, uh, declaring the whole counsel of God are in danger. Now Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, I quote this often, this is one of my life verses, and it says, deliver those who are drawn towards death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now listen to this. If you say, surely we did not know this, or we didn't know people were perishing. Does not he who weigh the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his what? According to his deeds. The association obviously being with the knowledge that there are people drawn towards death and stumbling to the slaughter. And Ezekiel says what Paul is talking about here in 33, 7-9 where the prophet writes, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from what? From your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Now, these are the kind of verses people want to unhitch from uh, in the Old Testament today, but... Again, we see for a second time in our opening two verses, Paul uses the word therefore again, which means accordingly or in light of these things, take heed to yourselves, meaning do not shun teaching or declaring the whole counsel of God as overseers and shepherds over his blood-bought church. Now, (coughs) I... uh, Heard a rather interesting message this past week. Uh, actually, Pastor Dave's wife, Rhonda, had said, you ought to give this a listen. And I listened to Jim Simbola from the Brooklyn Tabernacle, a wonderful man of God who God has and is using greatly. And he said something that really struck me as I listened to his sermon. He said this, it has become popular for pastors to ask and be asked, what is your vision for the church? And what Jim said is actually pretty stunning. He said, it's not the pastor's job to have a vision for the church. It's the pastor's job to fulfill Jesus' vision for the church, to carry out Christ's vision for the church. The church belongs to Christ, and it's only Christ's vision that matters. What a great reminder. 
And what is Christ's vision for the church? Well, in part, it is to not shun declaring the whole counsel of God. We have that in front of us here today. As a matter of fact, we see Paul tell Pastor Titus in 2, 1 to 10, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not giving, given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. This is recorded in the Old Testament as well about speaking of the things you've learned of the Lord to your children within your own house. To be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient, to their own husbands that the word of God may not be what? Blaspheme. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself, Pastor Titus, to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that no one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Or watch your behavior. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. This is an employee-boss relationship. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, there are those today who stand before congregations and they disparage teachings about repentance and holiness and righteousness in the life of the Christian. And they've even coined a phrase associated with that type of archaic teaching, at least in their minds. And that is they call it the behavior modification gospel. Now listen, are you here this morning? Tune in. If your behavior didn't change after you met Jesus, you haven't met the Jesus of the Bible. Because the fact is, he changes everybody who has a real encounter with him. He changes how they think. He changes the habits in their life. He changes the desires of their hearts, and that manifests itself in a change in life. He calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And listen... I fear for those who have taken the magnificent grace of God and turned it into a license for sin because they're going to give an account to Jesus someday for what it is that they taught, who is going to examine all the words and works of everyone who is called to teach and those who are teaching who were never called. And listen, if the church is going to have a strong finish, and we want to have a strong finish at CCT... We want to have a strong finish here, and therefore we must remember this truth because it is a common practice today, but here it is. Listen, diluting God's word will never lead to saving more souls. Diluting God's word will never lead to saving more souls. Now listen, this pastor who came out that I mentioned in our introduction called the Bible's moral standards antiquated and irrelevant. He blasphemed the word of God, just as Paul warned in Titus 2. And yet, many today who call themselves Christians not only agree with him, but applauded him for having the courage to come out and take a stand for what he thought was right. People today believe that if we redact portions of scripture, more people are going to be open to being saved. 
And yet Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. In other words, be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. Is that not repentance? Is that not what is being stated there? No longer living like you used to, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And then he cites some examples. When we locked in, walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, the people who do those things, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge who? The living and the dead. Now listen, today's message and much of what is called the church is that Jesus loves you just as you are. And that's true. Amen. He loves you just as you are. He will save you just as you are, what some people say. And that's true too. And he will leave you just as you are, is what some people say. And that's a lie. He changes us. He gives us his spirit. He fills us with his presence and therefore changes the direction and focus and practices and habits of everybody's life who comes to him. And those who teach, you don't need any type of behavior modification. You don't need it to be saved, but it is the end result of being saved. Amen. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And many today acknowledge that the Bible teaches repentance, but they have taken the path of Lucifer and they have questioned the directions and directives of God and marked them as irrelevant and outdated. Listen, we're not going to do that at CCT. We're going to have honor and respect for the word of God. And we are going to revere every word on every page as inspired and infallible. We are not going to shun the teaching of all of God's word because the church cannot be added to without God's word. Therefore, we need to do the same when we're out in the world. You need to do the same when you're out on the campus. And our world and campuses are filled with many people who need Jesus and diluting God's word will never lead to saving more souls because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and the implanted word is able to save men's souls according to Romans 10, 17 and James 1, 21. Now, let's look at 29 to 31 a second time. Then Paul says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, what's the next word? Watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears and tears of compassion and concern being implied. I think it's as interesting that uh, Mike McIntosh was telling me that uh, when Pastor Chuck was asked multiple times what his concern was after his departure, and his concern was what Paul wrote here, that savage wolves would come in and draw people after themselves and lead many astray. And therefore, it's a valid concern in the church today, within Calvary Chapel today as well. Somebody say... We need to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen. Now, 
having established the whole counsel of God as a source for teaching and the standard by which all human beliefs and actions are to be measured, Paul now issues a twofold and very dire set of warnings. He says after he leaves, savage wolves will come in among them and some will be dressed in sheep's clothing. His first warning is just that. Wolves will come in from without. His second warning is that wolves will rise up from within. And it is the latter that we should be more concerned about because it is far more effective and therefore more dangerous at the robbing of human souls. Now, I think the greater danger is to the latter, wolves rising up from within, simply because the book of Acts and history tells us that when the church is persecuted, the church grows and the church spreads. And savage wolves coming to attack the church from without has been a contributing factor to the spread of the gospel today. Case in point, in Iran, the church is growing faster in Iran than anywhere else in the world. And they are one of the most persecuted uh, groups of people in the world because of the uh, tyrannical government under which they must live. So the real danger, the real concern, the real Warning for you and I is that the wolves from within are far more dangerous. Here's why. Because they look like sheep. They use the sheep's language. They partially agree with the sheep, but they are actually wolves who are speaking perverse things. Now in Galatians 1, 6, 9, Paul says to the church of Galatia, same kind of warning. And here he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, simply because there's only one gospel. Amen. But he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven named Moroni, uh, I'm sorry, that was just an insertion there on my part. Preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, meaning received from the apostles and apostolic doctrines, let him be, last word, accursed. Now, interesting. In Acts 20, we find the word perverse. That Greek word there means to distort, misinterpret, or morally corrupt. The word pervert in Galatians means to transmute, to turn around, or to make into its opposite. Now, Paul warns the churches in Galatia and Ephesus with strong exhortations and warnings concerning those who distort and misinterpret Scripture and transmute it into the opposite of what it actually says. He says, let these kind of teachers be accursed. And the Greek word is anathema. It means to ban or to excommunicate such teachers. And such teachers today are not made into anathema. They are not banned. As a matter of fact, many of them are the most popular in our country and world today. I always find it rather bizarre in a sad way that there are groups who have accumulated a list of the 10 richest preachers in the world. Why on earth would there ever even be such a list? But that's the world we live in 
today. And all of them share a same common feature. And that is that they are misrepresenting the word of God. They are transmuting it into the opposite of what it says and means. Now we see this in Revelation 2, 18 to 23, where the Lord sends his messenger, the angelos of the church in Thyatira, write these things. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, symbolic of judgment, and his feet like fine brass, again, symbolic of judgment. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless... Can you imagine when this letter was being read in the church at Thyatira? Here they, I know your works, love, service, and faith, and patience. And as your works of the last are more than the first, people probably started sitting up straight. People probably were receiving this. And then that word, nevertheless, everyone sank back down in their seats. I have a few things against you. Listen to this. Because you what? Allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, or he's going to bring to uh, uh, an end this particular church. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to what? According to your works. We find that similar phrase used at the great white throne judgment. We want Jesus to have paid for all of our sins and all of our evil works. Amen? Now, the word allow means to permit one to do as they wish. It can be translated as to not restrain. It can also mean to simply let alone. In other words, not do anything about it. And Jezebel is most likely a moniker. I don't know of anybody that would be naming their daughter Jezebel, especially not at this particular time in history. But she was labeled as a Jezebel. She was a traitor. She was a deceiver. She was a manipulator. And they were doing two things at this church. And they were permitting her to teach that sexual immorality was okay. And also to have fellowship with idolatry, which is the meaning of eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, we see much of the church today condoning and permitting sexual immorality. And many churches are even promoting idolatry, having made the love of money or material things the measure of God's blessing. Listen, can you be blessed of God, loved by God, watched over by God, and be flat broke? Absolutely. Everybody's probably been there, done that at one point in time. And it isn't that God was disciplining you, as many teach and believe today, or that you have a lack of faith. It's just part of life. Not everybody can handle money the way some have been blessed with. It would lead many astray, pierce some through with many sorrows. Jesus said it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he doesn't want to make it hard on us. Now, you know what I'm talking about here this morning. I've said this before, and I'll repeat it this morning, that Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, but most have thought at one time or another, yeah, but I'd like to give it a try. No, we don't want to do that. Amen? Now, Paul said, 
I warned you for three years with tearful passion about this. And you need to be watching for this both from without and from within. Now, here's our takeaway regarding having a strong finish. This is probably the shortest point I've ever given in our 20-some-odd years of being together. It's just simply four words, and it's this. Are you ready this morning? Listen, redefining sin is one. Redefining sin is one. Now... Reiterating our first point, we need to remember that diluting or redefining God's word, terms, and definitions isn't going to save more souls. It will, however, deceive many into thinking they're saved when they actually are not. And Jesus rebuked Thyatira for the very actions that much of the church is practicing today, allowing teaching that contradicts Scripture because it conflicts with the tolerance demands of our culture and society that we live within today. And from within the church, there are those who have risen up that are telling the congregants or parishioners that by faith you can make wealth and health a personal reality. And it's usually attached with simply sowing a seed gift into their ministry that allows for your own personal wealth to begin to bloom. Now, this isn't teaching any new teaching at all. It's actually the teaching of the ancient of promise nonsensimus. It is nonsense. Amen. Now listen, redefining sin is a sin. And those who redefine sin are to be an anathema to us, according to Jesus, according to the uh, inspired words of the Holy Spirit. Now that translates into this. Don't buy their books. Don't watch their programs. Don't listen to their podcasts and certainly don't send them any money. The only one who is going to experience prosperity is the one receiving the check, not the one writing them. And listen, those who say the Bible's directives regarding uh, sexual activity is outdated and out of step with culture, do the same with them. Don't listen to them, don't buy their products, and don't send them money. And here's the danger. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, Paul says to this very carnal city and church, but I fear that somehow... As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And that's what people are doing today. They are putting up with unsound doctrine, fables crafted by the minds of men to seek to make Christianity more acceptable to a fallen world. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul would go on in 13 to 15 and say, describing those who do these things, for such are false apostles. They are deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into a what? An angel of light. Listen, Satan isn't afraid to quote the Bible. That's where he started with misquoting the word of God, or at least challenging what the Lord said to Eve. And then he added this, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, listen, false apostles are the devil's ministers. That's what Paul is saying here under the inspired words of the spirit. And they also transform themselves into ministers of what? Righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Again, pointing forward to the great white throne judgment. Now, 
the message that many are putting up with today is that God is love and therefore love lets you do whatever you want. And love does not limit itself to an ancient set of moral principles, but adjusts with the times and desires and wants of the people. That's a redefinition. And redefining sin is sin. And those who are doing so and gaining a following, as many are today, will give an answer for every deceived soul that they had led astray. And we are not to be their supporters. They are to be anathema to us. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, look at 32 through 38. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities. And for those who were with me, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than receive. And then we see the record of his kneeling down, praying together, the free Uh, weeping that took place amongst them and then putting him on the ship. Now, Paul switches back from teaching to testimony and then back to teaching. And then finally, the tearful farewell that we just mentioned after he had raised these men up, taught them for three years and warned them at the same time. Now, the Greek word translated commend loses a bit in our day. And in this context, it would best be understood as to entrust. He says, I entrust you men to God. And he links God and his word and his grace as the means by which they are built up. He talks about an inheritance among the sanctified. And that's just another way of saying eternal fruit from your ministry that God will add to his church, therefore his kingdom and heaven through your teaching if you teach the whole counsel of God. Now in John seventeen fourteen to 19, what's called the great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples and all who would come after them. He mentioned during this prayer, and he says this, and it's true for us as well. I have given them your word. He has given us his word. Amen. Amen. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by what? By the truth. And Paul, again, is pointing to the importance in our text of the truth that Jesus highlighted as being the word of God in the high priestly prayer and the need for the whole counsel of God and the uh, reception of the implanted words and its capacity to save the human soul from eternal death. And he says, I entrust you to God for this calling and purpose. And he says in verse 33, and I'm paraphrasing what he mentions there, he says, my actions proved I wasn't after your wallet. I wasn't chasing after your money, nor was I coveting the things that you had. In verse 34, he says that he worked with his own hands to provide not only for his own needs, but that of his ministry team. And then in 35, he switches back from testimony to teaching where he says, laboring like this, I have shown you that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it is more blessed to give than Receive. Now, 
We don't find this quoted in the Gospels. We don't see this quoted anywhere in Scripture outside of here. But what we do find is this in the last verse of John's Gospel in 21-25, where John says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Now, when Jesus said this, we don't know. It seems as though he said it frequently because it was widely known and Paul spoke it as something as if it were something that would be in the minds of those who he spoke it to. Now, as I mentioned, the world quotes this particular passage. We hear it all the time from all sorts of people that is more blessed to give than receive. Now, Paul is not saying that the elders, which is the same word for pastors, should not earn a living by the preaching because that would contradict what he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, and 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. He talks about those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But the message that Paul was saying is this. You're not supposed to be in the ministry for the money. And that's why there should be no list of the 10 richest pastors around the world. Somebody say amen. Now, he says the true blessings are in what Jesus said and Paul practiced while among them. By giving up what he had every right to in order to support the weak. Now, the weak is a bit misleading, again, in the English language, because the Greek word actually means, in this context, to be weak in means, meaning to be needy or to be poor. Now, we have mentioned this previously, but I'll remind us again, that generosity is supposed to be a Christian attribute. Why was the delay there? (laughs) Generosity is supposed to be a Christian attribute. Now listen, it's not exclusive to us because there are people who are unsaved who are very generous people by nature. And so that's true. But listen, it's not exclusive to us, but it should be common among us. It should be an identity factor or feature of us all. Now listen, giving and being cheerful about it is not limited to the cheerful, but it's a mandate for all. Cheerful simply describes the attitude, not the action. We should be cheerful about doing things for the name of the Lord with our finances. Well, I'll take those token amens out there. But Now, here's what the point is. Here is what actually is being said. Listen, there is no personal sacrifice too great for God's kingdom and glory. This is what Paul is teaching. There's no personal sacrifice too great for God's kingdom and glory. Now listen, sacrifice and self-denial are not popular concepts in today's culture as we live in a me-first world. And this was the first human character flaw that Paul named that described and defined the perilous times that would come in the last days. He said men, people, would be lovers of themselves. Do we live in such a time? Absolutely. And in Matthew 16, 24 to 27, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, say anyone, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then he illustrates his point. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. Listen, it's better to be rewarded for your works than judge for them. Now, 
In his final farewell, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of something that everyone's flesh will fight against, and that is deny yourself. He said by implication that while he had every right to earn a living from the gospel, he denied this right in an effort to be an example to them of what it means to be a living sacrifice because they were obviously a poor and needy group where many of the people of the city were. Now, this chapter closes with a record of the tearful scene and the realization that this was the last encounter that this group would have with Paul, at least on earth. And Paul, in his closing words, encourages them to have a strong finish. Finish well. We need to have one too. Amen? Now listen, probably one of the most wonderful things that I've ever heard in our 20 plus years together is last week after I said something that was convicting and it was intentionally meant to be about our Tiller Day sign-ups, between first and second service, we had to print more sign-up sheets. Amen. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so glad you responded with my encourage or to my encouragement and exhortation to you. And listen, I know it will be a sacrifice, but here's the other thing. Are you ready for another one? I got a zinger coming. You ready? The sacrifice isn't in signing up. The sacrifice is in showing up. Amen. So we'll just move forward. But I also want to remind you and all of us, there's no sacrifice that is too great for God's kingdom and glory. Now, after he washed us in the blood of his own son, after he forgave us of our many sins, after he made us temples of his Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee that we have a future inheritance, after he promised to never leave us or forsake us, after he assured us that nothing could separate us from his love and no one could snatch us from his hand, after he gave us a peace that passes understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, after he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, there is nothing we could forfeit in life or deny our rights to that will ever equal what he has done for us. And that's why he could say in Matthew 6, 33, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things we worry about that he addressed after this statement shall be added to you. Listen, that sounds like an offer we should not refuse. Seek first his kingdom. Listen, let's finish strong. Let's take the Lord at his word and any sacrifice we make for the expansion of his kingdom and the glory of his name will never be too great in light of all he has done for you, in light of all he has done for me. And I'll close with a final amen. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Thank you for this scene. Thank you for these closing words of Paul, at least to this group of men who he had tutored and nurtured and watched over and warned passionately with tears for three years. We thank you, Lord, for these words of exhortation to us that we can glean from them. And Lord, we too, like Paul, we want to finish the race and run with endurance and not waste our time, as he would illustrate elsewhere, by being like a shadow boxer, just beating the air, doing meaningless motion. But God, our heart's desire is to do things for your kingdom 
and for the sake of your glory. And Lord, help us to embrace what our flesh so quickly wants to reject, and that is self-denial and sacrificial living. But Lord, we thank you that someday all of these things, that like Paul or any in this room or beyond, God, who have ever laid aside rights and privileges in order that your kingdom may grow and be expanded, will receive, Lord, far beyond anything they have sown into for your namesake and glory and your kingdom. So we thank you and we pray this morning that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, so we thank you that you want to include us in that. We thank you, Lord, that your thoughts toward us are of peace and not of evil, to give us a future hope. And Lord, we are so grateful for your presence in our lives. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the ascension into heaven in front of eyewitnesses. Thank you for appearing before 500 people at one time during that 40 days when you walked the earth after you rose. Thank you for indisputable, undeniable proof that you, the word, are true. So help us to treat it as such. And we thank you again for our opportunity in the book of Acts and beyond as we have studied these many years. And it seems as though things are closing up as far as the church age goes, Lord. So we want a strong finish. We want to finish for your sake and your glory. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.